Father, thank you for the privilege of uh, being here again this morning. Uh, We come as people with open hearts. We come, I hope, as people who have been broken and continue to be broken by uh, our own hearts, by the world that we live in. But we thank you. We thank you that you have provided for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We are helpless, yet in him we find all the strength that we need for every day. We ourselves have no clue, but in Him we find wisdom. In Your Holy Spirit we find truth. In Your Word it guides us and it helps us in all of our relationships and even in the thoughts of our own heart. Who we are, where we're going, what we find security in in life. The sacrifice that is acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, Thou wilt not despise. And so we come this morning laying these things before you and asking you to teach us and just show us how to follow. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is kind of a multiple holiday in a way. I mean, uh, we've already, uh, it's been drawn to our attention and through the breaking of the bread that um, Palm Sunday is today. Uh, I don't know if you realize that, but Palm Sunday is actually the ending of Daniel's 69th week. The day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that 69th week ended. The next week is yet to come. And the other holiday, of course, is tax day being tomorrow. And that's not why I'm wearing the tie. You know, I thought I would do something different this year. I mean, as opposed to all the other years. I kind of had a clue that I was going to have to pay. And you know what I decided? That I was going to pay my tax bill with a smile. Didn't work. (laughs) The IRS still wanted money. That was a joke. Oh, dear. (laughs) You know, when you get shot down on your first joke, you know. Um, uh, Just some things to encourage you. Uh, Next to being shot at and missed, Nothing is really quite as satisfying as an income tax return. Income tax refund? Uh, forget it. Um, that, that's actually, by the way, from Winston Churchill. Uh, he had the experience of running above the trenches in um, Belgium. And he said there's nothing more exhilarating than hearing bullets going by you with no effect. So I guess we liken that now to tax season. Uh, the IRS, they take care of their own employees. I don't know if you're aware of that. They have motivational uh, uh, posters for their employees. There's one motivational poster with a man holding another man upside down by, by his heels and shaking him. There's things out on the ground, a new way to render to Caesar. And at the bottom of the poster, it says, be audit, you can be. Oh, anyway. Uh, so you're going to love today's verse, right? We're in Romans chapter 13, and it says this. It says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Don't you wish you could pay your taxes like that? I think there'd be a lot more love going around. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love 
is the fulfilling of the law. So peace and be filled. No, you don't get out of here that easy. Um, I want to talk, before I get into this verse, I mean, this is a verse that we've heard before, and this verse gets used a lot, and it's kind of so, what is Paul talking about here, and how does that fit into our lives? And we know Romans is a book about theology, in high-minded and eyebrowed things, but... Um, I want to talk about something completely different for a little bit here. Um, you know, in an army, there are a lot of things that you just have to do to stay alive. If you're in a war zone, there's a lot of things you have to do to stay alive, right? Um, obviously, you need to know how to shoot a gun. Did you know you need to know how to clean a gun? Uh, eventually, they get all clogged up with baloney, and, and so... Uh, there's a part of training when you go into the military. You have to know how to take the gun apart and actually clean it. You know, for some of our, us men, we didn't learn how to clean until we got married, you know, uh, because we had a, a motivational voice standing behind us. But when you're in the Army, and this is your life, your gun jams on you, and you're in a war zone, you've got to know how to clean your gun, right? Um, what about being physically fit? Uh, if you're in a war zone, you can't determine your terrain. You have to be able to run. You have to be able to crawl. You have to be able to do all of these things. And even in the Air Force, in the military, they made us go through an obstacle course, although I think it was just Darwinianism trying to weed out those who were uh, weak of heart at that point. It had nothing to do with actual combat, if you knew the Air Force back then. Uh, what about... Uh, driving a Humvee and things like that. I mean, you know, so what happens, you know, you get training for all sorts of things. What happens if your Humvee driver gets shot and you're out in the middle of Iraq or in Afghanistan? What, do you stand there with your thumb in your ear like, we need a driver? you got to know how to do that kind of stuff, right? I mean, it just sort of goes with the the, the territory. If you're in a battle, you have to know... All that kind of stuff, you know. Uh, you know, for some of you, I know that um, the military illustration is maybe a bit too military, but there's some Texans in the room right now. And you know, when you go out to a rodeo, you realize all the things that they do in a rodeo, people really used to have to do, right? They turned them into rodeo events, but before technology or, or something else came along, people really had to ride horses, and they they had to to be able to turn them quickly to go after things that were running in the wrong direction. They're, they're, these were all skills at one time, and we celebrate them in rodeos, and we think, ha, that's cool that they can do that, but it has no relevance to our lives. Uh, the relevance to our lives, that's kind of the issue, isn't it? Do you know, uh, how many people, well, I don't know if you've ever read the book Robin Hood or seen the older movies, but you know there's one place in the movie Robin Hood that there's a archery contest. And in that archery contest, they're trying to catch Robin Hood because they know, you know, that he's going to show up for it. Do you realize that that archery contest is actually a part of real history? In 1252, in the Assize of Arms, the assessment of arms in England... It was put into law that every man 
between the age of 15 and 60 years old had to have a bow and arrow and be able to shoot it. Talk about giving, giving people arms, right? I mean, I don't know where we are right now, but back then it was conscripted into law. If you were between 15 and 60, you had to have bows and arrows. You had to be able to shoot. And in the 1300s, they went another step. They said that every Sunday, men were required by law to go out and practice. Part of the reason was that every other Tuesday... Somebody else was invading England. Yeah, I mean, the French, they owned England for a while. The word gauche was referring to the Englanders. They were like somebody with a left hand that could only work with their left hand. The word gauche is left, right? We picked that up in our language because of the French occupation. Thank you, France. And then all the words with ski in them, came from the Norwegians when the Vikings moved in, and they took up occupancy for a while. Everybody was flowing into England. You know, everybody wants an island vacation, but they were coming in to live. And so the, the powers that were in England said, no way. Every Eng- man in England, every Englishman has to know, by law, you have to take up arms. You have to own a bow and an arrow. And then in the 1300s, every Sunday, you've got to go out and practice. That was law. That was culture. But there was a need for it, right? The problem is, what happens when the need goes? What happens when there's no more need? Well, so what, hap- what would happen to a, an army is you would institutionalize contests for gun cleaning. Bases competing against different bases. Uh, the, the army competing against the Marines. You'd never bring the Air Force into that. They, you know, they don't know what end to shoot out of. But, you know, it's the idea that they would have contests. Who are the guys who can really clean their guns fast? And that would be sort of like the military rodeo, right? And, and push-ups. Which part of the service, I'm, I'm thinking JR is going to tell us it would be the Marines, could do the most push-ups. Why are you doing push-ups? Because we're competing against the Army. How about Humvee driving? The Humvees, they'd look like sports cars, man. They'd have decals like NASCAR on them for the races. The Humvee drivers would be famous, one base competing against the other. It would be great. Again, it would be just like the rodeo, right? If there were no battles, nobody would ever do that stuff anymore. And eventually, You'd forget why you were even doing that stuff because it's unnecessary. And eventually you'd just stop doing it. Right? Anybody remember what sword drills were? Oh. Sword drill was when you took a group of kids or even a group of adults. I've seen this done with adults. And who can get to Ezekiel 25.13? First, and everybody break up in their background. And they would do it. Why was that even important? Oh, 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 oh. 
It was because if you were in conversation with someone and needed to find a particular verse, you knew how to get to it, and you knew how to get to it quickly. Because in the middle of a conversation is the wrong time to be, well, I don't know if it's in the Old Testament or in the New Testament. I mean, we did that. But see, that was back in the day when we actually talked to people about the Bible. Right? And remember memorization? Right? Memorization, what good was that back then? It was, it was this idea that if you're actually talking to a person and you need to know what Romans 3.23 says, you had it memorized. Or how about Romans 6.23? How about Ephesians 2.8 and 9? And so, we used to do that because we used to talk to people about Christianity. But see... Oh man, sword drills, we gave up on that thing. Nobody does those anymore. I mean, Aileen's trying to teach the kids the book of the Bible. You kind of wonder, oh, why do you need that? Siri, you know, you don't need that anymore, right? And memorizing verses is pretty much the same thing. I don't know if you're interested in this, but um, it is still law in England that men between 50, 15 and 60 must own bows and arrows. It's in the books, but obviously there's no need for it anymore, is there? So, here's the deal. What do you do with all the machinery? You know, so I'm using this illustration of, um, you know, the military and the things that basically uh, keep men alive on the field. But what about us? Why do we have buildings? Why do we have tech? Why do we have classes? What really is the mission? See, because here's the deal. Is that if we lose the mission, what happens is we live for the machinery. If we lose the mission, we're living for the machinery. We own buildings. Why? I don't know. It's a good place to meet. Takes us out of the the cold and out of the rain. Really? That's cool. And then we spend the rest of our time maintaining the buildings and maintaining the stuff. You know, I was up in the mountains of uh, Ecuador. 14,000 feet. These are the foothills of Mount Chimborazo. Mount Chimborazo, by the way, is the highest point from the center of the earth. It's further out than Everest. And the reason it's further out is because us men can all prove this. When you get to a certain age, you become a little bit wider at the equator, uh, the equator you know? And so the foothills of Chimborazo are actually at 14,000 feet. The Indians up there, people are coming to Christ. You know where they were meeting? Out in the open. They didn't have buildings out there. These people were coming in. It's cold up at 14,000 feet. You know what high tech was there? This guy showing a Jesus movie. An old Iowa retired farmer. Can hardly speak Spanish. They're speaking um, Quechua. Right? I mean, and and some of them are, are willing to come down a step so they can communicate with them and speak in Spanish. Here's high tech. He got the generator going. Yes. 
Now we can plug in. And you know, it's like, you got the what going? That's high tech at 14,000 feet with the Kichuas. And then they plugged in the projector to show the Jesus movie on a wall where they hung a sheet. That's high tech. And people were coming to Christ. See, that, that's the mission. That's the mission. And they didn't have very much. But you know what I'm amazed? I, I, I will thank God forever that I was a missionary. Because as a missionary, you see that a few things can go a long way. How little missionaries do with very little. How much they do with very little. And in the West, we have the opposite. It's how little we do with so much. What in the world is the problem? Why is Dan even talking about this stuff? I don't know. We're talking about Romans. And Romans, as you know, is, is theology. No, it's not. You get a lot of good theology out of it. But that's not why Paul wrote the book of Romans. This is a church in real time having some malfunctions, and Paul is trying to get them back on track. Now, I'm just going to make some, you know, I went to seminary, so I know this might be a little bit above where some of you are right now. I'm going to make some observations here. Chapter 13 comes after chapter 12. Right? Chapter 12 comes after chapters 1 through 11. Woo! So what, what is happening in the book of Romans? What, what are some of the highlights of chapter 1? For I, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. Paul sets the tone right away. This is about the mission. This isn't about theology. I'm going to give you a lot of good stuff. But it's the idea that every person is accountable before God. People aren't going to be able to say, oh, I didn't know you existed because I didn't hear this or that. He says, look out the window. Look at creation. Every person knows my majesty and my power because of the things that have been made so they are without excuse. In chapter 2, he talks about the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews don't have it any better. They are just as lost as everybody else. He basically gets everybody lost. And when he gets to chapter 3, he tells them how we can, they can get saved. For no one will be saved by works of the law, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But thanks be to God, because of what He's done in Jesus Christ. For now the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God which is through Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, they are justified by His grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I couldn't remember that verse in the last hour. So chapter 3, he's getting people saved. In chapter 4, he shows them that the basis is faith. In chapter 5, he shows them that now we have this transformed life because of Jesus Christ. We can have this transformed life. Chapter 6, he says, therefore now, you can't let sin rule in your mortal bodies. In chapter 7, he shows them how deep the problem of sin is, that it is actually a part of us, but now we've been given a new nature, but still they 
fight with each other. Oh, wretched man that I am, what am I going to do? You go to chapter 8 and you get the Holy Spirit. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's how we survive on this planet in mission. In the mission that God has given us. And then he does this interesting thing in 9 through 11 where he talks about the fact that God still has a plan for the Jews. I mean, you get some good Romans Road verses out of there, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. But it ends in chapter 11 with, God, with Paul saying that... Um, the gifting and the call of God are irrevocable. Irrevocable. Whatever God said to the Jews is all going to happen again. This is the entire plan of salvation. This is the mission that we're on. And where we are right now as the church, this is nothing to get heady about. The Jews are going to enter back in because God's call is irrevocable. It's irrevocable. He's going to make it happen. And Paul ends chapter 11 with this great thing talking about the, the wisdom and the understanding of God to bring all of this incredible, incredible reality together in His plan to bring salvation. How the Gentiles have been brought in and the Jews will be brought in again starting at Daniel's 70th week. And therefore... When he gets to chapter 12, he says, I beseech ye, therefore, brethren. Therefore what? Chapters 1 through 11. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. For this is your spiritual practice of worship. Based on 11 chapters, when Paul gets to chapter 12, now he's going to be talking about how we flesh this thing out, how we do the mission on earth, right? And the first thing he says is it starts with you being willing to make your life a sacrifice out of the love that you have been shown. The incredible wisdom, the incredible mercy of God. It's not compulsion. You don't gotta... Nobody's got to. It's just based on all of that love and wisdom is the mission of God that makes us want to follow our Savior into the harvest. And then in chapter 12, he gives them a little bit about how to deal with ministry among themselves. I mean, the first thing that he hits is the, the thing of spiritual gifts. This is a pretty important thing. It divided the church in Corinth. It was dividing the church in Rome. Why did he get the gift and I didn't? I deserved that gift. I should have gotten this. Instead, I'm a toe. I didn't want to be a toe. God never asked me. Paul says, you're right. He didn't ask you, but you can still function, right? Because the whole body functions together. That's how we get the job done. Interesting that he hits that. Like that, And then he goes on, their relationships, those who serve with a good heart, those who, you know, how do you deal with injustice in the world? You love your enemy. Well, that's starting to sound like Jesus in the, the uh, Sermon on the Mount, how he's preparing his disciples. It's the same God writing the same stuff. And then you get to chapter 13. 
where Paul basically says, you upset about the government? Never mind. Let it go. God sets, you want a sovereign God? God appoints the government. And a lot of us say, hey, that's unfair. I don't really agree with some of my presidents. You know what? If you were in Rome, you didn't get to agree with anybody. Or disagree with them. You you definitely didn't want to disagree with them. I mean, imagine you had rulers like Nero. Nero's the guy who's going to take Paul's head in a few years. I mean, it was a Roman government, not our government. Rome was going to seed. Immorality all over the place. It got to one place in Christian history where the church would take babies off the street. Babies off the street, literally. People, they couldn't have abortions, they would give birth, they would just leave the kids. And the Christians started gathering them and starting, you know, all this kind of benevolence that the church has been known for. So Paul says, never mind. You got a problem with it? Pay taxes to whom taxes are due? (laughs) Okay, Lord. Revenue to whom revenue is due? Tax collectors come up and they say, hey, we think you're making too much. You give us that, that, and that. Okay. It's like tax collectors back in Israel. Respect to whom respect is due. Honor to whom honor is due. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Because see, what Paul is saying is you need to get back to the mission. You need to remember why you're even here on earth. Here's a verse that people don't often read when they keep going on this. Verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to awake from sleep. They were sleeping in their faith. Christianity was starting to become routine for them. They were living for the machinery of it. And they had lost the mission. It is time for you to awake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Start behaving like redeemed people. I mean, that's written through all of the Corinthian books, letters. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, not in sensuality, not in quarreling or jealousy. I mean, that's what Rome was becoming. But put on, but put on, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That man that Savior, be like Him and make no provision for the flesh or to gratify its desires. The context is outreach. The context is Paul telling the sleeping people, you need to wake up. Quit grumbling about the government. Quit fighting Jew and Gentile. Remember why you have been saved. Remember what God is doing in this world. Start taking advantage of the things that you have been given. So he says in chapter in verse 8, O one, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. 
Now, you go love each other. Okay, that sounds like this is Christian love. This can almost be can kind of contorted as the, uh, the Pharisees did. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, I like that one, right? But that's not what he's saying, because as he goes on, he brings in the N-word here. In verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And when he uses the word neighbor, he really expands, doesn't he? The, the whole idea there. It isn't just that we love one another here. John and I have talked about this. The thing is, if you lose your mission, loving one another is, is kind of like a, uh, almost like an empty ritual. Why, why do I have to love these other people? Better to see it in a military perspective. <coughs> you know, you hear about the, the expression, I've got your back. Well, in the military, that really means something. You protect your fellow soldier. You are out there against the enemy. You are helping one another. You are protecting one another. You are encouraging one another. You are strengthening one another. You are moving forward together. And when Jesus brings this whole idea of loving one another, it's in the context that I'm leaving, and I've been doing this for you, you need to start doing it for each other. That's, it's the mission that makes loving one another have its, its power and its effect. If we're not involved in mission, then we're just doing religious stuff. But even beyond that, Paul says, loving your neighbor as yourself, the two commandments, right? You shall love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you realize you can't contort that to be duty. There is no duty in any part of those two things. Because the reason we love God is because He loved us first. The mission works off of love. Other things derail us. Other things get our, take our perspective away. Other things get us rooted into the earth. The love of God does not do that. The love of God puts it all in its proper context, all in its proper perspective. We love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, with all of our strength. Because look what he did. If it weren't for him, none of us would be here right now. We wouldn't have a clue. We would be utterly lost like your neighbor. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Why? Because if you've received that love, you need to show it to other people. And this church apparently at this point had gotten far enough away from the mission that although Paul hadn't yet gotten there, he knew he needed to write a corrective for them. And he says to them, wake up. You're not here to pay taxes. You still got to do it though, right? You're, you're not here to pay taxes. You're not here to grumble about the government. You're not here to say, I don't live in a house like I'd like to. I'm not driving the kind of car I would like to. You're here to serve Jesus Christ. And to put on Jesus is to follow Him. You know, one of the, it's really kind of interesting that um, in one of the Gospels when it gives the, uh, the Great Commission... Uh, and it says, and the Lord went up and sat on the throne, and he worked with them. Jesus is still working. He's still going. Are we still 
following. And so when you come to a verse like this, and you talk about the debt that you always owe, it is and it isn't. Because the people who will not find this to be a duty or a debt, although let's be honest, anything that we have to, the Lord wants us to do will always feel like a duty. You don't feel emotionally into it. You don't want to do it, but out of love. You know, it's kind of like in the um, Bible reading for today. Uh, Jesus said, uh, the disciples come to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. And he says, okay. If you had faith as size of grain of mustard seed, you could do this and that. And, um, and you would see results from it. And then he gives the parable of the servant who's been out in the field all day, and when he comes in, his master just says to him, prepare my meal for me, to serve me. And when you have done all of that, you say, I'm an unworthy servant and have only done that which was required of me. There's faith in that. So let me uh, try to get a little bit practical with this. How do we, how do, we do this? And I'm just going to say it all comes down to love. Loving our neighbor as ourself. Who is our neighbor? Anyone who is in need. Are your neighbors in need? Every one of them. Anyone who does not know Jesus Christ is in serious, deadly need. And we need to, we just need to get outside of ourselves because of the love of Christ and to minister to people. You know, we have opinions of other people, right? And sometimes those opinions are maybe a little bit valid. But what we need to realize, I think part of survival on this planet is realizing that everyone has been wrecked by sin. A hundred percent of us have been wrecked by sin. Uh, when I was growing up, um, my mom hated my dad. Ah, that's how you grow up. Ah, whatever. She hated my dad. And she told me, we had a chest in this storage area. Never let your dad take that chest. Never. Okay. I don't even let my dad take that chest. So, you know, I was kind of a curious kid, and the chest was locked. But in Milwaukee, your breaking and entering skills just get better with age, you know? And so, I remember one day sitting with the chest and figuring out how to, how to make things move inside of it with, with paper clips and all, and boom, it opened up. Now I'm going to look in the mysterious chest. And I opened up the chest, and um, we had a couple things from the Marines in there. But what was really interesting to me were some architectural drawings that my dad had done to build a second story on my grandparents' garage down on Greenfield Avenue. And as I looked at that, I was like struck to the heart. It was like my dad at one point had dreams. I mean, that life would have been nothing like the one he had right now. I, it was just like I was, I was looking into a part of my dad that I'd never seen before, and it hit me. It really hit me hard that my dad got ruined. You know, I don't know at that point I may have been a believer, but I mean, if I was a believer, I was like way down there. But I looked at that and I remember my dad got ruined. My dad was like everybody else. He must have had good dreams and stuff, but you know, Sin is just like hugely powerful. It kills everyone. 
So I became, a, I, I started following Christ. And my mom asked me one day, where are you going tonight? I said, I'm going to go over to Dad's house. And my mom just went nuclear. Why are you going over there? Don't you remember what he did to us? And I remember looking at her and saying, Ma, I can't not love him because of Jesus' love for me. I mean, I actually said it like that. Because of God's love, I can't hate him. Well, get out of here. So I got out of there. I learned that one really good. When you, you get an invitation to leave a room with a first person in it, you get out. And so I go over to my dad's house. And my dad was really interested in helping me, you know, because he saw that, um, you know, I was back in Milwaukee, you know, I wasn't in the service. And then he heard that I was going to throw my life down a rat hole by going into the uh, ministry. And so he wanted to save me from all that disaster, you know. And he's telling me, how are you going to make a living? How are you going to do this? I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Yeah, I'm stupid and all this kind of stuff. And um, we got talking, and I kind of moved the conversation around. And he went off on some real tangent. And I said, you know, Dad, I said, listen, one day you're going to stand before, before Christ. And he says to me, yeah. And you know what he's going to say to me, Danny? And I cut him off, and I said, yeah, I know exactly what he's going to say to you. He's going to say, Gus, you were wrong. There are the stairs down. And we had a good laugh. So why would I go into an environment like that? You do it out of love for your neighbor. In that case, my neighbor was my dad. And I witnessed plenty to my mom. This stuff is not easy. The thing is, life is full of people we don't want to be around. Life is full of people that we know are not going to receive what we have to say to them. And you know who's the best example for that? Jesus. Seriously. You look in the Gospels how often Jesus went to the home by invitation of a Pharisee. They all ended bad. Why did he do it? For us. For other people who were there hoping against hope that someone would catch it. When Jesus went into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he knew that they would reject him. In the breaking of the bread, we talked about the fact that um, he sent two of his disciples to go and get the, the donkey and the foal of a donkey and all that. Do you realize none of the disciples understood what was happening? John, in John chapter 12, says, but none of us understood what he was doing. It was only later, after he was glorified, that we had any idea. But they still did it. But the point was, here are the guys closest to Jesus, and they still don't get what's going on. And he walks into the temple. And he, he heals people. And the children are singing Hosanna to the son of David. And the Pharisees come up to him and they say, Are you going to allow that? And he said, Have you never read how it is written that I will perfect praise out of the mouths of babes? And this was a horrendous week for Jesus. They're trying to trap him in one situation after another. But why did Jesus do all that? He had to go through that week to get to the cross. Why did he do all that? Well, he did it for the people. People just like you and me. 
People who hadn't made up their mind and they didn't know. And you realize some of those people who were screaming for his crucifixion 50 days later opened their heart to him because of Peter's message, because of the Holy Spirit. For those people, he went into Jerusalem and he allowed himself to be completely misunderstood. There were some Greeks. Yay for the Greeks. They're finally doing something, right? The Greeks come to Jesus If Jesus hadn't gone in there and been willing to put up with all that stuff, the Gentile world would not have been open to him. But these Greeks, they come and they say, we would see Jesus. And they got an audience with him. What about his disciples? If Jesus hadn't been willing to do all of that and put up with all of that, his disciples would not have seen some very clear lessons in front of their eyes. What I'm seeing in all of this is, Why do we follow our Lord? Why are we willing to go into situations where we know there will be misunderstanding, where we will not be accepted, where we will be ridiculed for our message? We do it because Jesus did the same thing and God brought brought glory out of it. That's why we do that. That's why we love our neighbor. Not because of what he might do, but because God says, go and do this and let me do the rest. There's a song. Well, I just throw a couple things in here because I need to clean up and get out of here. But um, Howard Hendricks used to, um, uh, he did a lot of family study. He kind of broke a lot of the waves in the, early, in the late 60s and 70s on family ministry. And they did a study. I remember him say, hearing him say this. They did a study on Christian kids who leave churches, they leave their Christian family, and they go to a secular university and they lose their faith. So they did this study and they tried to come up with anything that would look like common elements. What I'm telling you is not science. I'm just telling you one of the things that Hendricks said they found. Almost to a person, their parents never invited in lost neighbors. There is nothing more incongruous to Christianity than not reaching out to lost people. It is what we are all about. And you can teach Romans, you can teach Ephesians, you can teach David and Goliath, you can teach them sword drills, you can make them memorize Scripture, but if in the lives of the people they look at, nobody is reaching out to lost people, you have just contradicted Christianity. You have just made nothing of the love of Jesus Christ. The love of Jesus Christ does not exist as we know it outside of a rescue operation. And if it isn't a part of us, then what are we really teaching our kids? This is why I love to hear churches say, we're a discipleship church. We can't lead anybody to Christ, but we make disciples. What are, you, what are you making out of your disciples if you don't lead anybody to Christ? You're just teaching them the Bible. You're teaching them the book. You're teaching them theory. We need the practice. There's a song I used to, I still do love, by Wayne Watson. Um, when Wayne Watson wrote his songs, he always put a little twist uh, in there. And uh, this is one of my favorite songs, and you'll probably understand why. It says, The Plague, Generation's Leprosy, Unspeakable Shame, Untouchable Lives. Much in need of love, but today 
Who's got much to give? Give in to the pressure. Cross the street on the other side. When Jesus told those listening that those who trusted Him could bear the strike of the serpent, could drink the poison in, was His vision some spectacular scene, some exhibition, some display? Or a reminder as I live and breathe to reach out and not be afraid. I try to be a godly man. I try to walk in the steps of Jesus. I disregard my Lord's command when I walk through this journey untouched by human hands. Good song. Got to hear it. So, none of us are perfect in this room. But here's what we can all do. Just like somebody in a third world country, somebody without any education, somebody without any resources we can love. Do you understand the love of Jesus Christ? Then... You lay it all on the altar. Because this whole thing has to do with the rescue operation. And it is glorious. It is amazing. Therefore, I I beseech you, therefore, brethren and sisters, to present your body as a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual worship. And we follow Him by loving Him and loving our neighbor. And you don't have to get it right. Get love right. Get love right. Don't worry about the Greek. Don't worry about the Hebrew. Get love right. Love Him. Love your neighbor. The story is told about D.L. Moody. He's 18 years old and he was a boot salesman. And this guy, Edward Kimball, came to lead him to Christ. And it says, Kimball, he set his heart on winning the young man for Christ. After praying about the matter, he arranged to meet Moody at the boot, at the boot store. I was determined, he said, to use, his, to use his own words, to speak to him about Christ and about his soul and started down to Holton's boot store. When I was nearly there, I began to wonder whether I ought to go in, in uh, during business hours. I thought my call might embarrass the boy. And when, I went away, uh, and when I went away, the other clerks would ask him what had happened and they would taunt him and make fun of him. You see how he's talking himself out of doing this thing, just like we do, right? But he was compelled by the love of Christ. I mean, that's the thing we've got to work on. In the meantime, I had passed the store. They taught, the store is told that he kept going back and forth in front of the store, building up his courage to go in. And I determined to make a dash for it. And I did, and have it over at once. That's what witnessing is about, getting it over. But that's what was in his heart. I mean, he's under all this pressure. I found him in the back part of the building, wrapping up shoes. I went to him at once and putting my hand on his shoulders. I made what I felt afterwards was a very weak plea for Christ. I don't know just what the words were, and Moody couldn't tell you either. I simply told him of Christ's love for him, and the love of Christ wanted in return. And that was it. And Moody was right for the pickings. In all the nervousness and all the blunderation of trying to share his faith, the only thing he could tell him about was the love of Christ. And D.L. Moody came to Christ. Now, he didn't know who D.L. Moody was. I mean, okay, he knew who D.L. Moody was. But he didn't know what God was doing there. D.L. Moody 
is responsible in ways we don't even understand of shaping so much of our Christianity in this country. God used him in amazing and spectacular ways, not only here but also over in England. And the only point of this message is to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the debt we always owe. You don't have to memorize evangelism explosion. You don't have to memorize the Bible. You don't have to memorize all the verses. But is it possible for the love of Christ to compel you? To appreciate it so much that you're willing to share it with a lost person and invite him into your house for a meal. Spend some time with them. Listen to their misunderstanding. Love them for the sake of Jesus Christ. Let God do the rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you.